I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. As Paul waited in Athens for the arrival of Silas and Timothy, he was provoked by the sea of idols surrounding him. He not only spoke in the local synagogue, but he also spent his time in the marketplace in Athens talking about the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone who would listen. Coming to the attention of the local groups of philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, Paul is summoned before the semi-official council that met at the Oropagus, or you might know it as Mars Hill, in order to give an account of his teaching. Paul is sharing about Jesus and about the resurrection with an audience completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament and unfamiliar with the creator of heaven and earth. So he begins with something that his listeners can relate to. Paul points out that as he had wandered across the city, he had come across an altar inscribed with the words, to an unknown God. It was acknowledged, therefore, that there is a God out there of which none of Paul's audience was aware. They are ignorant of God. So Paul begins his message with the words, this is in verse 23 of chapter 17, Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And it is here that we will continue our reading, starting in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This is the word of the Lord. We considered as we looked at the first section of Paul's visit to Athens that started back in verse 16, we considered that everyone will worship something. Idolatry is is simply worshiping something other than God himself. Sin has has so darkened the understanding that instead of, of seeking the true God, we seek for satisfaction elsewhere. So whether it's an actual object that's fashioned by man's hands or a good thing that is made into an ultimate thing, idols compete with God in each of our lives. And it's not, it's not that the need to worship is the problem. The problem is misplaced worship. Paul realized that it was ignorance that drove the Athenians to worship idols, but their ignorance did not excuse them. Idolatry is always a rejection of God. Rejecting God begins with rejecting truth. And everyone is accountable for suppressing the truth and thereby inviting the darkness. 
Paul, therefore, he takes as his starting point the universal desire to worship. He acknowledges that the people before him are concerned with religious matters. He acknowledges that pursuing spiritual things is notable. It is noble. It is worthwhile. He does not say that they arrived at the right destination in their pursuit of spiritual things. But he does commend them for at least trying. Verse 22, I observed that you were very religious in all respects. Paul, he's going to speak the truth. He will admonish his audience for the wrong conclusions that they have come to. But that's not how he begins. As we look at our text, I want you to keep in mind that that Paul is demonstrating how to share the message of Jesus Christ with an audience that does not have any background information. We would say that they are unchurched. We would say that they don't know anything about the Bible. They did not grow up in Christian homes. And as as our society moves further and further away from its Judeo-Christian roots, encountering people who do not have any sort of biblical background is a present reality. The people who study these things, the the sociologists, the the modern-day philosophers, they say that that we have entered a post-Christian age. Maybe you've heard that term before, post-Christians. And what that means is that in our society, Christian values can no longer be assumed. The favored status of, of churches in society can no longer be assumed. Whereas professing to be a Christian used to benefit a person socially and professionally, professing to be a Christ follower now does not necessarily help your cause. And as we are all aware, can actually carry a negative stigma with it. And the good thing about this, as I pointed out in the past, is that when you are rejected instead of accepted, the New Testament begins to make a whole lot more sense. None of us want to feel rejected, obviously, but but post-Christian means after Christianity. A biblical worldview is no longer the way most people process the world around them. They're not looking at the world around them through a biblical lens that has been largely taken for granted in our society. Up until very recently, churches are shrinking and closing. Church buildings are being sold off. And in some places in the U.S., they're being turned into apartments. It's been happening in Europe for probably a couple decades, but that trend is coming here. More millennials and those from Generation Z are identifying as nuns than identify as Christians. Nun, N-O-N-E, is, is the category that you check on the survey when you don't affiliate with any particular religion. We are an after-Christian society, a post-Christian society. And in many ways, that makes our spiritual atmosphere similar to the spiritual climate of Athens in the first century. The idols of our culture, they're not made of stone and wood, but they are just as prevalent. We worship ourselves. We worship our careers. We worship our ideas. 
We worship our opinions. Just, you know, spend about five minutes on Facebook to see how a person's opinion, even if they don't know anything about the subject they're talking about, their opinion is supposed to be received and believed or else. We worship entertainment. Binge watching Netflix. Anyone? Sports teams. We worship higher education. I mean, just look at how the the pursuit of degrees in some circles is this all-consuming passion. None of these things that I just mentioned are evil, but they are all good things that become ultimate things. We are a culture full of invisible idols, and we, we provoke God to jealousy in our pursuits. The person that you encounter today is a lot like those that Paul was speaking to in the Oropagus and that area where they had taken him. And the way to approach such a conversation is offered to us by Paul's example. This is very instructive this morning, where we're going to begin going over. The apostle, he does not begin with, with the scriptures as he would in a Jewish synagogue. Because in a Jewish synagogue, the scriptures are taught and believed. But he's speaking to an audience who do not have the scriptures for a reference point. So what does he choose for that reference point? Well, Paul chooses something that is, that is common to all of us, regardless of where we live, regardless of the language we speak, or the time period that we live in. He uses what, what theologians call natural revelation. That is, Paul uses the creation for a reference point. We all dwell in the same creation. The same nature surrounds all of us. We're all surrounded by the same creative fingerprints of God. And from this position, Paul appeals to what is known by every person within and what is evident to every person without. And this is what nature reveals to us about God. That's why it's called natural revelation. Now what the Bible reveals, on the other hand, is what is called special revelation. And that is because the only way that you and I know certain truths is because God reveals them in His Word. There are things that we discover in God's Word that we will not discover by looking around us at nature. Special revelation. It is a special revelation from God that He's revealed through His written Word. But even without the Scriptures, there are truths that everyone can grab hold of because they are truths that are embedded, at least the knowledge of them, within each of us. We looked at Romans 1 last week to confirm that. And there are truths evidence through the creation or nature. Truths evident to everyone. And the first truth that Paul presents is this. God is the creator. God is the creator. In verse 24, Paul states, The God who made the world and things in it is Lord of heaven and earth. You know, this is so foundational that it's easy to overlook the importance of that statement. The idea that there is one God who created everything out of nothing, including human beings, lays the foundation for all that is to come. And that's why Paul starts there. Why does that matter? 
Well, it matters that God is the creator, first of all, because it tells us that he is a personal God. A God who is so far removed that he doesn't care whether or not the the universe exists. That's what the Epicureans believed. That's not a personal God. A God that is merely a part of his creation. That's what the Stoics believed. Is not a personal God. If God is in everything, the trees and the water and the rocks, then everything is God. And if everything is God, then nothing is really God, at least not in any personal sense. But a personal God is someone that can be known personally. He is relatable. He created you and me so that we can know him personally. If God is relatable, if he desires a relationship with men and women then we will each be held accountable for whether or not we're in relationship with him. And out of that flows the next important point. The God who created everything did so for a reason. He did so for a reason. Every object has a purpose for which it was created. You build a canoe in order to float on the water. You bake a cake in order to eat it. You manufacture a car in order to drive it. We as human beings, we do not create things unless the things that we are creating serve a purpose. Neither did God. Creation serves a purpose. The earth and everything in it was created for man. And what was man created to do? Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I, we were created to image God, to be reflections of God. God created you and me to look like him in the ways that we think, in the ways that we act, in the ways that we treat others. Your character is to be conformed to the character of God. You can only be like a personal God. You cannot be like an impersonal God. That, that permeates all of creation like some kind of cosmic force. A distant God who is not even responsible for creation has no desire for you to be like Him. The God of the Bible, however, the true God is personal. And this is seen in the purpose that He has for creation. The purpose that He has always had for it. Because God created the world, He owns the world. We could say God is the owner of the world. That is what Paul means with the statement, He is Lord of heaven and earth. As the owner, God has the right to call the shots. He has the right to determine how He will be worshipped. He has the right to determine how He will be honored. He has the right to determine or to decree what is right. And what is wrong? He's the owner. The architect, when he sits down to draw, does not submit to his drawing. His drawing submits to him. The architect determines where the doors will be and how high the ceilings will be and how many windows the structure is going to have. The architect is the Lord of the building that he designs. And the structure, it conforms to his decrees. God is the owner of his creation. What is Paul doing here? Paul is, is building a case for the true God 
who at the moment is unknown to his audience. He is working toward accountability. And what I mean, and what I want you to notice, is that if God is personal, if God has a purpose for his creation, and if God is the owner, then God will hold his creation to account. And the next link in the chain of Paul's reasoning is found in the last part of verse 24. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. In light of what's already been said about God, think of how absurd it would be to believe that the creator of the universe could somehow be contained in a building. Jeremiah 23, 24, the Lord says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? But this is exactly what occurs with idols of stone and wood. Men, they build houses or temples for them, and the idols, they, they reside within. It's absurd to think that the creator of everything could be housed in a building, no matter how magnificent. And there was a lot of magnificent buildings surrounding Paul as he was speaking in the Oropagus. It's also humorous to think that temples are made by men who themselves are created by God. If God created men, how could men build something to contain him? Unless we, we miss the application of this to us, let us remind ourselves again what an idol is. Idolatry is when you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing. So an idol is anything or anyone that receives your utmost devotion. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life that becomes a God to you. If making and saving money consumes your time, your energy, your resources, and your devotion, behold your God. It's not made of stone or wood. It's green and it's made of paper. If pleasing others consumes your time, your energy, your resources, and your devotion, behold your God. It does not dwell in a building, but it looks like exhaustion and anxiety and discontentment. For that's, that's the result of trying to keep everyone happy. If you are the focus of your time, energy, resources, and devotion, behold your God. You worship yourself. Your attempts to always make yourself happy at the expense of doing the will of God and at the expense of loving others is what receives your time, energy, devotion, and resources. Your idol is an invisible statue of you. Your idol, idols, my idols, whether they be visible or invisible, are housed in, in bank accounts or in the expectations of others or in your own desires. But God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He is not containable, nor will he tolerate competition. The first truth that Paul presented was that God is the creator. The second truth is this. God is the sustainer. God is the sustainer. God set things into motion, and now he keeps things running. Look around. Just like the creation proves that there is a creator, Nothing creates itself, 
So the fact that the creation remains proves that there is a sustainer. We understand so little about energy. I know people spend their professional career studying it, but we really understand so little about waves and particles and, and how they operate. Scientists consider that light is both a wave and a particle. But they also now say that it's really neither. Light is something more complex. We, we haven't quite figured it out yet. We know that light exists, but we don't really know what it is or why it operates the way it does. And so it is with energy in general. Where did energy come from? What exactly is it? We don't know for sure. We just realized that, that energy is at work because there's life and there's motion. We figured out how to harness some forms of energy. But we really don't know what it is. We know the invisible is there because we see its visible effects. The sun rises, the sun sets over and over again. Life grows, life ends, life begins again. Why do atoms stay in constant motion? And why does everything in the universe hold together and not spin apart? Well, it's because of the energy that God created and continually sustains. There are underlying and invisible forces at work that keep the universe in existence. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17 simply puts it like this in reference to Jesus Christ. In Him, all things hold together. It's a good answer. In Him, all things hold together. Why does the universe and all the energy it contains not spin out of control? Because in Jesus... It all holds together. Paul is going to get to the role of the Son of God and the plan of God, but first he must convince his audience of God as the sustainer of creation. We read in verse 25 that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. The idols that were worshipped by the inhabitants of Athens, like all idols, they were not only statues. They represented particular gods. They were statues of gods. You go to India, or you go to a, a nation that, that is steeped in, in the Hindu religion, and you see a multitude of statues, and they all represent different gods. Though we might think it's silly for a person to bow down and worship an idol, nobody that does that either in ancient times or in modern times, worships a statue because they believe the stone or wood that it is made out of can help them. That's not what they believe. They aren't actually worshiping the material that's before them. They're worshiping the false god that the statue represents. They're asking for health or wealth or favor from the god that the idol visibly stands in the place of. I think we understand that. The God behind the idol must be appeased. So, so idol worshipers, they bring food and drink, and they offer them to the God by placing those things in front of the statue. Sometimes the worshipers offer sex, performed before the idol or in the idol's temple. Happened in ancient times, still happens in, in present day. 
But in all cases, the offerings are made in order to convince the God behind the statue to do something. So reproductive acts with temple prostitutes were done to encourage the gods to send rain in order to make the earth produce. Food and drink were offered in order to bribe the gods with gifts. And in this way, it is hoped that the gods will give health and wealth and favor. And all of this, it looks very much like idols are fed and clothed and generally taken care of. It looks like they have needs. And that is the backdrop to Paul's statement in verse 25. God is not served by human hands in the ways that idols are. If God could be served with material objects, it would imply what? It would imply that he needed something. How can the creator of the world and everything in the world need anything from the world? The notion is laughable. Yet, is this not how we treat God at times? We treat him like he needs something from us. If we're not careful, we attend worship services to please God. We do acts of service in order to earn points with God. We make God promises in order to prosper or to receive healing. In short, we treat God very much like he needs something from us. And if he receives what he needs, then we will be blessed by him. You tracking with me here? The truth is, of course, that God needs nothing. God did not create you or me because he needs us. God did not redeem you or me because he needs us. He does not need your fellowship. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were together in fellowship from all eternity. They didn't need us. God certainly doesn't need anything that, that you or I might offer to him. doesn't need our time or our efforts or our money. As if he is served by human hands. God does not need a thing. But he does want something. He does want something. He desires that you love him. He desires that I love him. And that is why he created you not to fulfill a need in himself, but to be honored and glorified by the relationship that he desires to have with you. God does not need your prayers. He wants you to pray as an expression of love. God does not need your obedience. He wants you to obey as an expression of your love. God does not need you to come to worship services. He desires that you and me love him by worshiping him together with each other, with others who love him. Anything the Lord asks you and me to do is never because he needs it done. He asks us to do because of what he has done for us. We are responding to his grace. We are responding in prayer, in worship, in acts of service. We're responding to God's undeserved favor. 
We're responding to his initiative. We are responding to his love. May we never believe the lie that God needs something. May we believe the truth that the personal God who created the world desires a relationship of love with his creation. Another way in which we observe God as a sustainer is the further statement in verse 25. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Paul knows his audience. We talked about this last week. This statement that Paul just made that I read from verse 25 is probably directed toward the Epicureans and the Stoics. There's two schools of philosophy the representatives that are listening to him as he gives this message. So recall that the Epicureans, they believe that God is so remote that he does not interact with humans nor take interest in their affairs. Here, Paul flatly contradicts that idea. Not only does God take interest in the affairs of men and women, he is the very source and sustainer of life. He is the one that breathed breath into your lungs and determines whether you will take your next breath. A God who is that near, a God who is the source of life and love and every good thing is once again a personal God. He cares. And He demonstrates His care in a thousand ways. If you recall, Paul spoke to another Gentile audience back in Lystra. That was in chapter 14. And in verse 17, Paul proclaimed, God did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It is a matter of recognition. We talked about being thankful during our prayer time this morning. Most people go through life not recognizing that breath and life and every good thing continually flows from a God who delights to give and provide and demonstrate His love. The very fact that you and me are so abundantly taken care of is glaring evidence that God is the sustainer. The Stoics, on the other hand, they did believe that God, or at least some God-like force, was close, was near. Their error was that they believed God was actually within the creation, that God was not separate from His creation as the Bible teaches. They did not believe in the relatable closeness of God. The Stoics also believed that, that everything was fated to be. What will be, will be. You just have to suck it up and endure the suffering that is sure to come. I know a few Christians that think like that as well. But you see how Paul also challenged the Stoics' thinking and ours. If God gives life and sustains life, then life is meant to be lived. Don't miss that. If God gives all things, that is every good thing that makes life good. Food, friends, family, work that you enjoy, possessions, 
If God gives those things that make life good, then life is meant to be enjoyed, not suffered through. Now, there is suffering in life. Don't get me wrong. We understand that. But suffering is the result of sin. God declared his creation very good. Back in chapter 1, before chapter 3 in Genesis, when sin entered into the world. It was very good. All that God had made. It is sin. It is sin. It's the wrong that we do to God, that we do to ourselves, that we do to one another, that brings forth the suffering. The Stoics say the suffering is to be endured. But suffering is not the goal. It's not even God's desire. We have brought suffering upon ourselves. Don't put that on God. It is God who shows us the way out. It is God who shows us the way back to Him. And the goal toward which God is working is that sin and suffering will be no more. God is creator. God is the sustainer. God is also the seeker. God is the seeker. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. As Paul has spoken of God as the creator and God as the sustainer of his creation, we have noticed the language of Genesis chapter 1. The apostle, he's taken his audience back to the beginning. God is not just looking for one nation to serve him. He's not just looking for Israel to serve him. He desires that the inhabitants of every nation bow before him in worship. And this is what Luke, the writer of Acts, has been documenting. The people of Athens are about as far in their thinking from the people of Jerusalem as could be imagined. Gospel started in Jerusalem. It's come to Athens. It's come this far. Both Jew and Gentile were created to serve the same God. And every single person on planet Earth comes from the first man, Adam. By the way, there is much debate on whether or not Adam was a real historical figure or just a symbol to represent early humanity. Paul is not using figurative or symbolic language here. He plainly states that God made from one man every nation of mankind. In fact, a real historical person named Adam who is the father of every human being on earth, is central to understanding what Jesus Christ did for you and me. Listen to Romans 5, verse 19. For as through one man, that's Adam, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. If Jesus was a real man, which I think we can agree on, then according to the reasoning of Romans 5.19, so is Adam. The point Paul is making is that God has divided up the nations. God is the God of every ethnic group. He has authority over every people and every tribe. 
He is a personal God who will hold every nation accountable. The place in history in which you were born is no accident. God, it says in the text, determined their appointed times. Verse 26. You might feel like you belong to another time. But the age you are right now in 2022 is exactly according to the plan and the purpose of God. Where you live, that is what determines your ethnicity and your culture and your language. Where you live is no accident. God determined the boundaries of their habitation. You did not decide that you'd be born in America, that you would speak English, that you would eat with a fork instead of chopsticks. I tried that the other night. It did not work out too well. Ask Alice about that. I didn't decide that I would grow up in a culture where I ate with a fork. And what this does is it does away with any notions of ethnic superiority, does away with any notions of discrimination because of someone's cultural differences. It does away with those notions because the same God decided that you would live in America as that someone else would live in Nigeria. It was his choice for his purposes, not yours. But the main reason that Paul says this is not to address cultural differences. The main reason that God determined when and where each and every person who has ever existed would live is found in verse 27. That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each of us. You might feel like that your life is an accident. You might feel like some days there's no point to it all. You might feel like you got switched at the hospital and your crazy family is not really your crazy family. <laughs> but unlike the Stoics believed, your existence is not a matter of fate. It was determined by God. And the reason is so that you will seek Him. I look back on my own life. And as I reflect on people who've influenced me over the years, on the family experiences that I had, on the, on the cultural influences, on my friend circles over the years, on my education, on, on the jobs that I've worked, on my church experiences, they all had a purpose. In one way or another, they drove me to seek God. And if you think about it, your experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they also drove you to seek God. Your suffering or sin or disappointments, they might have driven you away from God for a season. But they also, I believe, eventually drove you toward the Lord. If not, then allow them to do so. Here's the thing to realize. God is not distant. You and I are. This phrase, grope for him, in verse 27, it gives us a picture of a blind man 
trying to feel his way to his destination. If you were calling to a blind man, you can clearly see him, but he cannot see you. He is the one having the difficulty, not you. We are the ones trying to feel our way to God. But God can clearly see us. God does not hide himself. We hide ourselves by rejecting the truth about God that is revealed through the creation and through life and through our experiences. We're the ones who have chosen blindness, but God has chosen to be found. And it is because God has chosen to be found that you know that your seeking is not in vain. The promise of God found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 is this. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Do not misunderstand this. You will not find God simply because of your efforts. You will not find God because you are so good at seeking. You will only find God because he wants to be found. God wants to be found. You will find God because he has made himself available. You will only make the effort to seek in the first place because God has taken the initiative to reveal himself. You will find God because he is drawn near. He is not far from each one of us. In our seeking, we need grace. In our seeking, we need to know that God wants to be found. The truth is that God wants to be found even more than you want to find him. Left to ourselves, we would grope in the darkness for an eternity. In fact, there are those who will not allow themselves to be found by God, and they will spend an eternity separated from the love that at least they received in indirect doses on earth through all the good things that God even allows unbelievers to enjoy in this life. Here's how you know that it is possible to find God. And here's how you know that your seeking is not in vain. And here's what Paul is ultimately driving toward. God is a personal God. God is a relatable God. And there's no greater demonstration of God's relatability, of God's desire to personally connect with you than the person of Jesus Christ. The Creator loves you so much that He sent His Son to find you in the darkness. You are blindly groping and the Lord Jesus comes to you. We know that God relates to the human race because His Son became a human. We know that God is personal because His Son was the most relatable man to ever live. And we are assured that God allows himself to be found because Jesus Christ was lost. Let me say that again. 
we are assured that God allows himself to be found because Jesus Christ was lost. Jesus went to the cross. He took upon himself your sins. And he experienced the darkness of total abandonment. Jesus was lost to the Father in death so that you might be found. When you believe in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him with your life, allowing yourself to be found by the God who has all your life been seeking you, then the groping in the darkness stops. Your eyes are opened to see the God that is there. Have you seen Him? The barrier of your sins is removed in Jesus Christ that you might experience the love of God and the fellowship that He planned from all eternity for you to experience. That's the reason you were born. If you do not know the Creator personally, may today be the day that changes. Allow yourself to be found. The seeking shepherd that left the 99, that weren't lost, he's out looking for you. Allow yourself to be found. If you do know the Creator personally, may you be reminded afresh, may you be reminded anew this morning that there is no greater experience than living in the relationship with God for which you were created, for which you were designed. And that is the only place in the arms of the Father who has sought you out, that you will ever find satisfaction, that you will ever find the, the peace that eludes you, that you will ever find the joy that your heart longs for. It's in His arms, and it's through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are. reminded and humbled and perhaps broken to realize once again that you seek us. And the only reason that we are found is because you entered the darkness that we could not find our way out of. You showed us the way, you made the way. You called us to yourself. Help Jesus Christ to remain our focus. Lord, help us as we go forth and, and live the life for which we were created by you to live. Help us to be willing to go into the darkness with you. To search for those that are still waiting to be found. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.